Welcome to Disrupt Disruption, a series of intimate interviews with global thought leaders and practitioners operating at the intersection of business, leadership and technology. We're discussing all things innovation and disruption and how to not only survive but thrive in these times of exponentially accelerating change. Trusted by CEOs, founders and leaders globally for the latest take on business models, methods, culture and leadership, we cut to the chase, debunk the hype and get real. You're in great company. I'm your host, Pascal Finette, co-founder of Be Radical. Right. Hi, everybody. I'm here with Wing Pepper, a dear friend of mine. We have met when Wing was the COO of a place called Factory or Factory 1000, which was a rapid prototyping shop in Silicon Valley. And I'm sure, Wing, we'll talk a little bit about this. You've also oodles, years of experience in the space of actually being innovative and being disruptive and doing this for uh, large corporations. So, I'm super stoked to be here with you today and talk about disruption. Let's start with disruption a little bit. Like, how do you even, for you personally, how do you even define disruption? Like, what is the what is the essence of disruption for you? Well, first, hey, Pascal, great to see you. Um, always good to catch up. Uh, for me, disruption, uh, when I think about companies and the concept of disruption, I go to the thing I know best or the thing I care about the most, which are people. And companies are nothing but groups of people. So if you look at human dynamics, and the dynamics of personal behavior, I think you get some insights into what disruption is all about. So here's what I mean by that. If you're a person, you really have two reasons to disrupt your life. There might be an internal reason. I want to change. There might be an extreme reason, like I'm an alcoholic. I have to become healthy. Or I might be an athlete. I have to develop a different a different way of going about my, my life uh, to be more competitive, but some kind of internal reason that's as a result of a threat, I have to change. The other reason I might have to change as a person is external. There's a, a force in my life, like a pandemic, and the pandemic is forcing me to rethink how I teach my children at home, how I do, how I eat my food, how I shop, all of these things. And so my motivation for disruption as a person is really one of those two things. It's either an internal reason I need to change or it's an external force. And I think that for corporations, it's the same thing. And I think that oftentimes disruption is is almost used for disruption's sake. We have to disrupt because we just have to disrupt as opposed to addressing a real meaningful change. And, you know, there's this saying about people that most of us spend our life uh, not in a linear fashion, but in a circular fashion. We're trying to get back to our true selves. And so as we go through our life, we go through these experiences and relationships, and we're trying to find our, our true inner self and, and bring that out. And whether you believe that or not, that's, that's a theory. And with corporations, you know, it's, I think in some ways it's the same thing. They start off with noble goals. They start small usually, and then they grow. And as they get bigger and more bureaucratic, um, they lose sight of that original mission. And so, you start to think about, well, why would somebody disrupt something? Why would a company want to disrupt a marketplace? It really has to start by looking inside and has to go, you know, what are we about? Why do we want to disrupt something? And then also you have to look at as external threats and companies are fantastic at putting up blinders and ignoring external threats to maintain their day-to-day existence. And to bring this back to where we started, those are all human behaviors. That's the way human beings behave in the face of threats, internal or external. 
That's super interesting. So what do you think in this context, and probably also out of the context, of course, without naming names here, uh, but the context you've worked with companies, when they come to you, and again, like your role very often was to be the the enabler of innovation and disruption, to be the executor of like creating the innovation or the disrupting uh, disruptive technology or you know service model, etc. Uh, what was their question when they came to you? Like, what is the what was their motivation? Was it was it something where they said, "Man, we see the market changing, we need to do something," or was it more proactive where they said, "We actually want to change the market ourselves"? I'm curious. It, it, it depended on the leadership. Mm. And again, it brings it back to people. So if you had leadership, and I'll use an example, Intuit was a, a, it was and is a fantastic company with great leadership. And they had a leadership team in place that was always challenging where they were and always saying, can we do it better? And can we find a better way to do it? And I would say that's a great example of people with this self-discipline to disrupt their own work because they just have a almost a they have a financial and also a personal motivation to do a better job. That's a very noble way to way to work. There were other clients who frankly wanted to go through the exercise of being innovative and have workshops and try to keep uh, teams occupied, but they weren't really making any commitment. And the, the best example of this are companies where you see they set up an outside innovation structure that's separate from their primary company so that the innovation really has no impact on their day-to-day business and thus two separate cultures are, are created. And so it, it really ran the gamut. And I think it, the other thing I, would, thing I would say is I think that behavior was true also for startups as well as big corporations. People seem to think those are two very different beasts. And since they're both run by people, they have a number of amazing similarities. And, and the similarities are, I don't want to look for outside opinions I'm not going to keep challenging my stated beliefs. I'm not going to be humble and open and listen to the marketplace. Those those aren't just corporate behaviors. Those are human behaviors. So those were usually the kind of things that people would, would talk to us about. Interesting. You said something which I find interesting. I would love to dig into this a little deeper, which is, so there's this, this idea out there, and some say it's a myth, about this, like the notion of the core and the edge, like the separation of the core and the edge, and then the reintegration. And because it is very different cultures, right? Like the core being the efficient, effective, optimized, you know, churning out as many gadgets at the lowest possible price versus the edge being all about exploration. How do you marry those two? Because you, what I just heard from you, or like, at least what I made up in my mind, was there's a dichotomy between those two, but like they actually need to be the same in some way. Yeah. Well, you go back to, you know, I don't know how many years ago now, 1953, Peter Drucker wrote the only two things in a corporation, marketing and innovation, right? And, and people really misunderstand what he meant by that. You know, he meant marketing, not the way we all talk about marketing today, but finding new markets. You know, you start with sneakers, and then you get running shoes, then you get aerobic shoes, then you get six kinds of running shoes, and you get pronators and supinators. That's marketing, opening new markets. And innovation is always inventing something new, which is where R&D came from. And so all of that process led to a structure, which my old partner at Factory, Tom Cheese, to talk about all the time, which was this misunderstanding of what R&D was. And R&D is actually two very separate things, the R part, the research part, which is open lens, gather information, and the D part, which is narrowing by testing and learning to actually developing something. And so it's almost uh, that in-between period you were just talking about between the thinking and the innovation and then the widgets and making the factory. It's like, what's that transition? And I 
think over time, people just realized that it was too hard to make the commitment to integrate constant testing and learning in the day-to-day business because we're not set up like that. It's just too hard. We weren't taught that. We weren't trained that. That's not how we work. And so let's put it off to the side and we can have this real interesting thing going on over here. And meanwhile, we'll keep this other thing going here. You know, a great example of this live right now is SpaceX, you know, where, you know, whatever one's opinion is of that whole process, you know, you're watching the engines, the rockets blow up every couple of weeks and they're out with the new one. They just had another launch yesterday. They're going to have another launch later today or tomorrow. Um, This testing and learning in real time, as opposed to Blue Origin, Boeing and everyone else who are four or five X the cost and have not put anything in the air yet. So a great example of just live testing and learning and almost turning the process that transparency into a benefit, not just for them to learn, but for the public to follow along. And I think that's a, that's a hard process for, for traditional corporations to embrace, which are typically private and closed. And so they hesitate to blend those two functions together because it's scary. What do you think are the main factors which then lead to like corporations stumble? Because it, it clearly is, at, at least my experience, yeah. is like a lot of corporations, they want, right? And they, might, they often have even the, the resources for it and at least the desire, but then they seem to stumble over their own two feet. I mean, one I just heard from you is this, this inability, seeming a bit inability to be quick, nimble, learn what Tom Chi likes to call rapid prototyping. But what are the other factors you find as, as kind of like the underlying conditions which make companies stumble over their own innovation or disruption processes? Well, this gets back to what we started talking about, which is I actually think it comes down to individual people. Um, I don't think there's any external force or any structural impediment because all of those things are created by people. And so it's not as if there's some other entity that's creating the company or the corporation into which us humans walk and we throw up our hands and have to deal with it. We, We create all that. And so I think that leaders who are actively breaking down org structures uh, creating smaller teams. You know, the U.S. military is a great example of this. You know, small, nimble teams, huge decentralized decision-making device guidance system versus a command and control system. It's those kinds of structural things that empower people in the trenches or in the outer parts of the network of a company to feel a lot more engaged, feel a lot more empowered, feel a lot more energized, and to me, that's culture. The result of all of that is a, is a culture. And so it's your question about what gets in the way. It's not opening all those doors. It's not understanding that there's a different way to work, that there's a different way to have ideas bubble up from the outside and also to give permission from the top down for that to happen. And I think that's a big reason. I think we all know how organizations work and why people do them and the security and everyone has families and things like that. If you don't have permission from the leadership, not just to fail, you know, like we talked about in Silicon Valley, but to, to learn and to try and to, to voice opinions, you know, why do we have to have a whistleblower law? You know, think about it. Like we have to have it because you can't do it. And so I, I think that kind of transparency is really the key. I hear a lot about like, you know, like the, the individual, the, the leadership, probably culture in, inside of the organization. How do you, 
from your experience, like, I mean, you've done a lot of this work, and I know that you have a lot of successes, and I'm pretty sure also some frustrations about um, oh, yeah. getting <laughs> getting these things into the real world. What feels to me is like even the organizations I see who are really embarking on like an actual working like innovation model still seem to struggle getting the innovation then into the like back into the into the mothership and like scale it up and you know like actually disrupt the market. It's a good. It's a really good question. I'll give you an example. I, I, I really agree with what you're saying. And so healthcare is a great example. So right now there's probably as much quote unquote innovation going on in the healthcare world as, as anywhere, and super smart solutions are being created. What's really missing in the healthcare world are the, the uh, carriers, insurance players, uh, the, the uh, hospital networks weaving this together for the benefit of the patient, right? So it's really, a, it's almost like people need to understand or companies need to understand where they fit in the ecosystem, but none of this is really being organized around the benefit of the, of the patient or a consumer. So if you have healthcare right now, you, have, you, you either have your own healthcare or you're on some plan from your company, and then you're pretty dependent on what that plan in network out of network has to do. It's a pretty old system, and even with Obamacare, it's it's changed some, but there's huge innovation coming down down the road. There's so many different types of players in that ecosystem, and I think what's what's hard for the big companies, back to your question, is to understand where they fit. And so they like to think that being innovative is to create small solutions like startups. A startup solves this problem, it solves this problem, it solves this problem. That's actually not what the benefit, that's not the benefit the big company is going to bring to the healthcare world. The big, the benefit the healthcare company is going to bring is how you apply all those things to the benefit of Pascal and Wing and lower their premiums and give them better care. But they're not solving that problem. They're looking at, at innovation as, uh, how do we create the next bright, shiny object? And so there, that leads to some frustration. Because you can, if you look at all the innovation labs that have failed, and as you know better than I, most of them have failed, and and that will probably continue. And it's because they're doing all this work, but it's not actually accretive to the core need that the patient has of that company in our healthcare analogy. So what I'm really intrigued to say in the healthcare space is how do these big companies start to not think of innovation as starting new companies, but stitching together services in a value proposition that makes life better for your family and my family, lowers our premiums, and gives us better care. So, you know, that to me is, that's a perspective thing. It's a strategic view. And I think that that, that to me typically is what happens with a lot of these innovation things is that, you know, if you're a big corporation, starting the next new bright, shiny object is a thing, but you forget there's a benefit to being a big corporation and you've got millions of patients and those millions of patients need you to do something different from that. It's interesting. It connects to something Chris Yeh, who wrote Blitzscaling, mentioned to me, which is it goes a little bit towards this idea that if you're a big corporation, like you should really focus on what you're good at. And then let other people do, like the startups do the yeah. crazy innovation, like disruptive innovation stuff. And then essentially integrate them back in, like a little bit what Cisco well, did with their innovation model, right? Yeah, I mean, I would, I would just, what I would 
tweak slightly in what you just said, though, is that I think mm. innovation is in both places. And I think it's mm. equally, quote unquote, disruptive for the, let's call it the ecosystem provider versus the pieces of the ecosystem, right? So if you're an, if you're an ecosystem owner, there are many players that are going to play in your ecosystem and you're going to partner with them. You're going to have business relationships with them. You're going to share data with them. But your role is where you succeed is how well you tile that together to the benefit of the patient. What's really interesting in all this is that the user often gets lost in the process. And so if, if you and I are working at a, at a big corporation and somebody says, oh, we have to innovate quickly, what they really mean by that is they want us to generate more revenue and start new businesses. What they're not saying is we want to create a much higher CSAT score and deliver services much better to our core patients. Let's work backwards from that. So how do we take the life of 10 patients and improve it immeasurably by simplifying their health care, reducing their costs, and streamlining the way they deal with the healthcare system? That should be the goal. And so you work yeah. backwards from that, then innovation becomes, frankly, not as sexy because yeah. you're doing the heavy work of making the system work versus building the bright, shiny objects that go into the system. And I think that's hard for some big companies to understand to embrace their size and their scale and their role. Which ties it back to leadership, right? Because I, I guess that right. then is the role of the leader. Right. And if you think about like Kaiser and healthcare is an interesting example, who despite everyone trying to disrupt them for a long time, and they are trying right now in many ways, the Kaiser system of hospitals, doctors, and all three elements of it is really unique system for people. You know, and if you have Kaiser, you just go, you get your doctor, you go to the hospital, you get your drugs, you get all of that. It's all in one one system. Kaiser, incidentally, is a nonprofit, as we all know. So it it can be done, you know, and, and Kaiser's been around for many, many, many years. So there's certainly ways you can riff on that system, but they tend to look at their challenges that way versus in a startup sense. It kind of brings up like the question of like, do we actually need to do some different type of storytelling around this, right? Like making it attractive to leaders, organizations, big corporations to actually play the role they uniquely fitted yeah. to play. Well, I think the real challenge here, and this gets to the heart of back to your question about what do they ask for when they come to an innovation lab? Part of it is that they want to innovate. But, but I think for every client we had, we had the one single thread through everything, which is not one of those client, uh, corporate clients had spoken to a consumer. Mostly they were indirect, mostly they were indirect businesses, big wholesale businesses who sold through other channels. So they're mega corporations. Not one of those senior executives had talked to a customer of their business for years. And so on one hand, they want to innovate, but on the other hand, they're so far away from what the purpose of their business is, which is to delight a customer and provide a service. But the rub, they designed all these businesses to be wholesale businesses. We're just going to make the thing and someone else is going to service the thing and deliver it. And so as we get into a direct world, this is new behavior for companies. It's new behavior for a healthcare company to go, you know, I am actually in charge of my patient day to day, not the doctor. I'm in charge of the patient day to day and the doctor's a part of that network. I'm a computer company and I'm actually in charge of how my network connects to Pascal, not just the VAR who sells it or somebody else. And so I wouldn't underestimate the lack of muscle memory when it comes to how to deal directly with, with consumers. And I think that's a really big part of having a, 
a perspective that that would be your goal as an ecosystem leader. It's a real shift in the way businesses think because most of them think to be really big and to be an ecosystem, we're going to be sort of behind with someone between us and the customer. And instead, it's the exact opposite. We're the interface to the customer and we aggregate all of these things to the benefit of the customer. So we're actually just a big service organization. That's a bit of a leap for, for people to take. Given your experience with Factory and then later Pilot 54, a very similar organization also in, in terms of building, actually making innovation happen. If you were, if you had a new client coming into your, uh, into your office, you know, big corporation, pick your vice. What is the, like the, the three things you always tell them? Like, here's the three things you need to do before we even start thinking about doing something with you. Like on the, like, here's the things you need to do on your side. Yeah. And, and that is the way to ask the question. Here's what you have to do on your side before, before we're ready to do this. I think the first is be clear about what your strengths and weaknesses are and be incredibly humble and open and transparent about what your strengths and weaknesses are as an organization. And part of that can be what we just talked about is we're not set up to deal directly with consumers. So I think there's a, a humbleness and an openness and a willingness to be to learn. That's the first gate. I think the second question is, is leadership behind this 100%? And are you willing to give permission to everyone in, the, in your organization to, to even begin to go down this road? Because the minute there is the slightest hint of trepidation about this, the org ecosystem kicks in and everyone starts to protect their own thing, as you know. So, you know, I think that permission is the second thing. And I think the third is who are the people in the organization right now, today, that are willing to take risks and are willing to work bravely, not work an inch at a time? Who, who are the people in your organization who are forward thinkers, who are open-minded, uh, who want who, who have a financial and business reason to disrupt? Back to our first point about why disrupt. If you have a division of your company that's running at a huge profit, and you're cranking out lots of whatever it is you make, you know, I might say that's great, but show me something where you're not making a profit. Show me something where you really need to take a risk. Show me something that where you have outside influences that are disrupting an industry. And then let's go after that. So I think it's those three things. Let me ask a, a probably last heretical question. With everything you said and, and your like decades of experience in, in this space, broadly speaking, do you think corporations can even do this stuff? Or are they ultimately doomed? No, I think I think they can. I'm actually quite an optimist about this because I think there's another forcing factor that's going to help push this forward, which is that I think corporations are going to get much more into the public policy space because mm -hmm. the other dynamic that's going on in the world is the relationship between government and corporations. And corporations are moving quickly to start to take over many aspects of life that even in our lifetime, we never would have thought possible. And so I, I think that corporations are going to take on a bigger and bigger role going forward. And I think COVID will be a sea change event in terms of how people work with corporations, the services they get from corporations. So I, I think that corporations will be here to stay. I think that things like climate change, to give you an example, Right now, corporations who are slow and behind on sustainability and climate change are viewed exponentially less favorably by their employees. Because corporations are for-profit and, and, you know, ventures, 
yeah, we'll have a Kodak, but for every Kodak, we'll have something else that pivots and succeeds wildly, you know, and uh, that's the nature of, of capitalism. So I think corporations will be it will be in pretty good shape because there's so many forcing factors, external government, employees, uh, and competition. And that, to me, makes me an optimist because while it may be messy, I think that if you find the right people who want to change and grow, there are always going to be smart companies out there who want to do that. Wing, that is the perfect ending to this conversation. Let's end on an optimistic note. Let's, uh, let's end on a note that we believe that corporations can do this. For the record, I do think this as well. I think the, I'm just about to pen a, a blog post about this. I think that ego is the enemy, like the number one enemy we find in organizations. Yeah. Which I agree with that. Which reflects a lot, which, yeah, which reflects like your opening statement, mm -hmm. essentially. So, Wing, thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time. This is super, super interesting, super insightful, and uh, I'm very, very grateful. All right. Good to talk to you, Pascal. Hey, it's Pascal. Thanks for tuning in on this uh, episode of Disrupt Disruption. If you want more, check out the other episodes we have on this podcast. Also know that this is part of an effort of us writing a book about disruption. So uh, keep your eyes and ears peeled towards that. And if you liked it, do us a favor. Go on your podcasting platform of choice, iTunes, Google Play, whatever it is, and just like this. Um, there's some weird algorithm thing, which, you know, if you like it, they will like us. So do me a favor, do that. And if you've got any questions, any comments, anyone I should talk to, drop us an email. Um, easiest email address for me to reach it is P, just the letter P, at finet.com. With that being said, thank you so much for listening and I will hear you here soon.